Hello and welcome to the Portfolio Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, John Bryson, Head of Investment Consulting and Education Savings at John Hancock Investment Management. As always, the goal of this podcast is to help investment professionals deliver better outcomes for their clients and their practice. Today, I have an idea. Well, it's more like a question about an idea. And really, the question is, can you invest in an idea? And not just a small idea, but a big, world-changing, even world-saving idea. We're going to try to answer that today. There are many ways to invest for the long term. And an interesting approach booming in popularity is thematic investing. Different from more traditional approaches, such as investing by style or region or market capitalization or sector, thematic investing refers to strategies investing in long-term ideas or trends or even mega trends impacting our world over multiple decades, potentially allowing investors to capture the long-term opportunities created by these mega trends. To answer this question, I'm joined today by Dr. Sarah Cornell of the Stockholm Resilience Center and Mr. Gabriel uh, McKelly of Pictay Asset Management. Dr. Cornell is a research scientist and coordinator working on issues relating to human environment interactions in the context of a global, of global change. She leads a team of international researchers working on the planetary boundaries framework at the Stockholm Resilience Center. She also teaches an introductory uh, course to global change science and policy in the Stockholm Resilience Center's master's program. Dr. Cornell has a research background in marine and atmospheric chemistry, having obtained her PhD in 1996 for her research on the global nitrogen cycle. She was, she was a contributing author and expert reviewer for the UN IPCC, that's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Working Group Part Two. She's an associate editor for the journal Environmental Science and Policy and an editorial advisory board member of the Journal of Critical Realism. Also joining us, as I mentioned, we have Gabriel McKelly, Senior Investment Manager at Pictay Asset Management and Portfolio Manager of the John Hancock Global Environmental Opportunities Fund. Gabriel joined Pictay Asset Management in 2006 and is a Senior Investment Manager in the Thematic Equities team. He's been co-managing the Pictay Global Environmental Opportunity Strategy since its, inception, since its inception in 2014. Prior to that, Gabriel co-managed the Pictay Timber Strategy from 2008 to 2018, where he's kept in an advisory role, and was co-manager of the Pictay Clean Energy Strategy from 2007 to 2010. Dr. Cornell, Mr. McKelly, welcome to the Portfolio Intelligence Podcast. Hello, and thanks for having me. Hello, everyone. Dr. Cornell, I'm going to start with you. Please tell us more about the Stockholm Resilience Center and your role there. Um, okay, the Stockholm Resilience Center is about 15 years old now. And it was set up as a transdisciplinary center for sustainability science. It was actually established as a joint venture between Stockholm University, the Stockholm Environment Institute, that's a very influential international sustainability think tank, and the Royal Academy of Sciences in Sweden. That's the academy that awards the Nobel Prizes each year. Um, the center is now formally part of Stockholm University, and we combine a mission of research, real world engagement, 
and education about sustainability and resilience um, that we offer to graduates, to executives and the wider public. Um, I'm one of the principal researchers at the Stockholm Resilience Centre, and as you said, I'm Associate Professor at Stockholm University as well. Um, and my role, quite simply, is to guide and coordinate the research at the centre, particularly on the global dimensions of environmental change. And in particular, I've been involved in developing the underpinning science of the planetary boundaries framework. And as part of that, I work with a growing international expert network work that supports the applications of the framework. Excellent. Gabriel, I'd like to introduce you to the conversation. Tell us about your role at PICTEH. Yes, so I have uh, been at PICTEH for 15 years now, uh, and it has been an absolutely great journey, as you explained. You know, I was involved in the creation of many different uh, environmental funds. And for me, it's, it's perfect because as, you know, as a, I was always passionate about nature. I grew up in a family of naturalists. Uh, and then I studied economics and, and finance kind of to know how the world works and how we can have an impact. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a fund manager there. Uh, I am starting to know, you know this, uh, this sector extremely well since I have been looking at those companies and how they have evolved uh, over time. And uh, I have to say that it's getting more and more interesting. Uh, because 15 years ago, it was, you know, it was mostly about climate change, for example. Uh, and today, there are many more environmental issues that have become very relevant in the, in the public discussion. So, you know, the awareness is much stronger on those, on those issues. And regulation uh, coming from governments is also starting to have a pretty big impact. So we are really seeing the, you know, the, the world of, of business companies for, for which you know this is just an opportunity of bringing new technologies new product to the market um, so I would say that my, my job has becoming more interesting with time excellent well welcome Dr. Cornell I'm going to come back to you you mentioned and I mentioned it too the concept of planetary boundaries the framework what what is the planetary boundaries framework that's a great question and um, it's uh scientific agenda, and it's actually a framework that people are putting into practice at the moment. Um, the Planetary Boundaries Framework flags a linked set of environmental issues that mark out critical conditions for global sustainability. Um, it consists of nine dimensions, and each one of the framework's dimensions is a way to alert us to human-caused change in a global well, an Earth system biophysical process that is shifting the planet's fundamental system behavior. Um, when I talk about the Earth system, I mean the interactions of land and oceans, atmosphere and life itself. Now, we use the past 10,000 years, a, a relatively stable period in Earth history, as the baseline for the system where climate and the ecological conditions have been comparatively stable, especially when we compare it to the kind of the big swings to ice ages and um, very hot periods in the deep past of Earth history. And for each one of the dimensions, we as the scientific community have um, characterized the magnitude of the shift away from Earth's long-term stable baseline. And where possible, we've quantified that, and that's what the boundaries um, represent. 
So in other words, the framework gives us a way to take a very long-term and a very large scale perspective on the human enterprise and how it's changed its environment. And our quantified boundaries help us to mark out what is what we call a safe operating space. Um, it might not necessarily be safe for everybody, but on this large scale abstracted view of how the earth works, um, we can say for sure that the past 10,000 years of stability have been um, an important part in letting everything that we regard as human civilization develop. So when we're talking about things like large scale settlement, long distance trade, agriculture, all of these things rely on a relatively stable and predictable earth system. And it's precisely these conditions that we're concerned about um, disturbing now. Understood. So we're going to talk about this a little bit deeper, but tell me how you got connected with Pictet in the first place. Um, Pictet contacted me because they'd encountered the framework in the scientific literature. I mean, the, the planetary boundaries framework was actually developed about a decade ago. Um, originally as a decadal strategy for research and collaboration, but um, policymakers and some businesses in various European countries were getting interested in putting the framework into practice about that time. One example is the European Environment Agency, which used the framework for an assessment of whether Europe is living within the limits of the planet. So the, there was an emerging discussion about the way that this scientific framework framework could also be used as a way for describing global responsibility for various kinds of environmental change. Um, members of the Pictet asset management team had, had been working on a way to translate the scientific metrics, which I have to admit are, are rather arcane and impenetrable, um, into workable metrics for economic and financial decision making. Um, now, on, on issues, not just around climate and biodiversity, where let, we can probably say that um, the academic and policy debate is quite mature and businesses kind of know what they ought to be doing, but also a whole range of issues around natural resource use and pollution. Um, now, obviously, this translation process from global long-term metrics to the um, metrics that make sense for economic and financial decision making involves assumptions and some simplifications. Um, and my PICTEC colleagues asked me if the translation still kept the intended meaning. Um, and that was the start really of an ongoing dialogue about global environmental change and the global power of finance. Now, Gabriel, how did you first hear about the planetary boundaries framework? Um, so on, on our side, we were having many discussions internally on you know, what was environmental, because we had many environmental funds. We had water, clean energy, agriculture, timber. And we were wondering, you know, uh, asking the different fund managers, what, which are the companies that have a positive environmental impact? And, Every time, you know, we had a list of companies where some, you know, we, we really felt that some of the companies actually solved one environmental issues, but at the same time created, uh, you know, something detrimental to another aspect of the environment. Um, so I was discussing 
interesting within the, the timber theme with a colleague named Christoph Boots, who had been on the ESG space for, for a really long time. And uh, he had read about the planetary boundary concept and he introduced it uh, to me. And we thought that was, you know, that was absolutely great because it was a holistic way to look at the issue and look at all of you know, what scientists consider the, 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 the biggest issue. And not only do they have the list of the issues, but they actually have the limit uh, that we shouldn't cross. And then we thought, oh, but that, that would be great because then with this, we should be able to adapt it to, the, to, to our investment world and understand which companies could operate for a very long time without headwinds uh, and which companies would actually face issues. Um, so that's how I heard about it. And then we, you know, we tried to implement it. Makes a lot of sense, especially when you think of the headwinds versus the tailwinds that can be facing companies. Dr. Cornell, I do want to dig a little bit deeper on the genesis of the framework. Can you bring us back in time and tell us how it came about? Mm, okay. Um, as I as I mentioned in passing earlier, the framework really was originally a strategic science agenda um, by scientists for science, um, where um, scientists from the global change networks for research need to work better together on issues like climate and biodiversity um, and other ways that human beings are changing the functioning of the planet. Um, so back in 2009, a group of experts from these global change research programs convened a series of meetings um, to set out this, this decadal strategy. But actually, in one very real sense, the genesis of the framework goes back to 50 years or more of this international collaborative science. Um, the quantifications come from the piecing together of an understanding of how the Earth system works um, through Earth observations. I mean, satellite data um, are an important part of that through global models and as I've indicated the kind of piecing together of, of historic change in deep earth history going back thousands and even longer millions of years um, and it's that piecing together that gives us today's system understanding of how the environment works and helps us to have predictive power for the future now climate change is really the best known and the, in some ways the best evidenced example of environmental change and human caused environmental disturbances. But really similar efforts have been going on for changes in biodiversity, in other words, all of life on earth and the water cycle landscapes and actually the fundamental chemistry of life itself. So the framework was a way for bringing together these um, different knowledge communities and it was published as an academic, a series of academic articles. Um, and we continue to research it, but as I mentioned as well, that national policymakers, businesses, and, and increasingly local communities use the framework as a way to hold these multiple planetary pressures in mind at the same time when we're thinking about what to do for sustainability action. Yeah, the framework, no doubt, in my research is, is spreading around the world. Now, Gabriel, I want to ask you, how do you take this scientific framework and apply it to an investment portfolio? How does Pictet do that? Yes, so this is the key question, and that was a, a challenge uh, for us. But I think we, we came up with a, with a framework that has worked uh, very well. 
So it's very complex, but I would try to simplify it here. Uh, we work with an external partner, and basically our goal is to uh, calculate the environmental footprint of, uh, of all the, 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 count, the companies. So we translated the boundaries into limits uh, for resource use and emissions, uh, basically per unit of, uh, of value creation. So we, um, you know, we looked at the, the nine planetary boundaries, and we found a way to approximate a score to understand whether on the nine boundaries a company had you know, an impact that was beyond the, the safe operating space or whether it was within the safe operating space. Um, and when it's within the safe operating space, there are even companies that actually have a positive uh, impact, uh, which we calculate with a, with a negative uh, rating. And for this, we, we thought that we, um, you know, we needed to have the full life cycle uh, analysis of the company's product or, or services. So it's not just the energy that will go into the product, for example, but it has to be all the raw material used. Um, it has to be the manufacturing and assembly of the product, the product use itself, for example, for a car, you know, the, um, the fuel that will be used with the car is a big part of the, of the footprint. Uh, then you have to distribute, transport the, 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 the product. And then, of course, you have the disposal and, and recycling of it. So it's really the, the full life cycle of the product from cradle to grave uh, that we take uh, into, into account. Uh, so we did this with an approximation uh, by, by sector, uh, but it works very well. And we were very satisfied with uh, you know, the, the end product. So, so as both of you kind of bring more clarity, I'll, I'll recap a little bit in my own words. Feel free to correct me. But Dr. Cornell, we're, we're talking about the limits that the planet can survive. There's these boundaries that if we push past, um, the world as we know it will no longer be the same and it would lead to dire consequences. So we have to be aware of these boundaries, these limits, and not push past them. Give us some examples of the nine dimensions that you, you, you mentioned that we need to be aware of. Uh -huh. Nine of anything can be quite tricky to remember. So um, I'll, I'll give them to you in three chunks, okay? okay. Um, biodiversity loss, climate change, and climate's twin problem of ocean acidification. It's the twin problem because both climate change and ocean acidification are caused directly by carbon dioxide emissions. Now, life and climate are really the defining features of the system that we call planet Earth. And Earth history shows us that changing one changes the other. And so we regard climate and life as the sort of the core boundaries, the interacting dimensions that, the, um, that really define how, what we call the state of the planet. And I mean, you, you talk about going beyond the boundaries. I mean, actually already the world has had multilateral environmental agreements in place since the 1990s to avoid dangerous climate change and to halt biodiversity loss. Um, we're well beyond the situation where <laughs> severe consequences might happen. They're happening here and now. And so these are both urgent and important um, um, dimensions. Then we have land system change, freshwater use, and what we might call atmosphere use. In other words, the, the changes of atmospheric chemistry, particularly when we put fine particles into the atmosphere, because that, that changes um, the conditions for life and it changes the climate as well. And so land and water change are really the main human caused drivers 
of disturbance to this balance of life and climate. And then the third category are the chemical changes that alter how life can regenerate itself and how it co-evolves with climate. And here are nine, uh, three remaining dimensions are biogeochemical flows, novel entities, and ozone depletion. And maybe I ought to just say what biogeochemical flows are. We're really interested in the natural element cycles of nitrogen and phosphorus and the other essential nutrients for life and the way that they flow through land, rivers, oceans and the atmosphere. And then, of course, we're interested in entirely new synthetic substances because the effects of these novel entities are intrinsically, by definition, poorly predictable. Um, and one of the scariest near-miss examples, and actually the ninth dimension of the framework, is ozone depletion caused by the CFCs that many people regarded as safe when you look at them from the narrow perspective of near-term um, human health, but certainly not from a planetary health perspective, um, because they cause large-scale ozone depletion and global warming when they're released into the atmosphere. And Gabriel, I'll go to you. The way I think about it, it, it what Pictet is trying to do is first find, not only find the companies that are not making the situation worse, but also working to make the situation better. And over the long term, those are going to be the investments that truly pay off. That's the way I think about it. Would you, if you want to clarify, please do. But can you give us some uh, examples, maybe some segments or some company examples that could bring this to life for us? Yeah, you explain our concept uh, very well. Uh, so yeah, once we have uh, you know created the universe with the planetary boundaries of companies within the boundaries that also have a positive impact uh, on, on on at least one of the environmental dim dimension, uh, we really find uh, a universe of companies growing faster than the broad market because consumer preferences are changing, regulation is changing. It's really bringing you know a, a quite a lot of growth for these uh, these companies. So I, I can give examples. We have um, you know obviously renewable energy, uh, but also energy storage, smart grids will be something big in the future. Energy efficiency is, uh, is a really big uh, segment for us with all the industrial efficiency, how to do more with less, less energy, less material. Uh, building efficiency is, of course, quite important. And obviously, the electrification of transportation, which be a, would be a major theme over the next um, 10 to uh, 50 years, I would say. Um, then we have something we call dematerialized economy. It's all the software used. Uh, for example, simulate, you know, simulate uh, different flows to make a reactor, for example, more efficient uh, for a plane, uh, to uh, check for uh, flow dynamics, to have a car that will uh, have the exact form and shape that it can glide through the air you know, with the least uh, resistance possible. Um, and that's very, very important. How you know, software to make a new building using less energy and you know, over time buildings will be probably producing energy uh, actually. Then we have the theme of sustainable agriculture and forestry. And if we look at the boundaries, agriculture is always a pretty big uh, issue, biochemical flow, uh, nitrogen, for example, in the, in the environment, a lot of pollution with, uh, with pesticides. 
And there, there are lots of new ways to do organic food, regenerative agriculture, precision agriculture. Uh, and then forestry is also something where you can have good sustainable forestry. Trees are basically sucking carbon from the, you know, from, from the air to grow. So if you use wood to do something, you actually store carbon for, for, for some time. Then you have water, which is very important to have clean water. It's at the basis of life, treat the water. Then you have everything related to a circular economy with waste management um, and uh, recycling of, of everything. And, and finally, we have pollution control, which are all um, the different monitoring and testing uh, devices uh, out, out there, different filters to um, if we have some pollution at the end of the process, uh, we need to clean it up. So the, those are the segments we have. There is kind of a, there was a wave last year with all the different stimulus program going to green technologies. Um, but and, and so some sectors like renewable energy or electric cars are quite well known and we have some high valuations, but that's a very small part of actually for, of our fund. Our goal is more to target companies that uh, people might not think actually have a positive environmental impact. But since we have this planetary boundaries methodology, we're, we are able to find companies uh, actually in this field that have not been recognized yet uh, by the market. Those are, those are some exciting, fascinating, timely and forward-looking examples. So thanks for sharing that. I think that'll help our listeners quite a bit. I, I wanna stay with you, Gabriel. What do you see as the benefit of this framework versus other potential frameworks? Yeah, so when we, you know, when we started, we can, you know, we, we, we can think of, you know, our own opinion of whether a, a company is environmental or not. Um, and um, and I, I think that's one, one possible way to select uh, companies or to listen to what companies are saying about their product. We wanted to have something, you know, as much as possible based on what uh, scientists are, are saying about the environment and with a clear methodology that, uh, that helps us to, uh, to, to know what is the environmental of, of impact of companies. And we just don't have one impact. We have like nine different dimensions uh, for, for all companies. So it's based on science. That would be one, uh, one very positive thing for us. Uh, then what, what we have is that we don't depend on the day, uh, you know, uh, data from companies. Uh, companies tend to disclose more and more data and they have been, you know, a lot of improvements have been made over the, the, the past uh, seven years, uh, but still it's very incomplete uh, today. So if, you know, we look at two companies, one might report more than the other, one might be more precise than the other, and in the end it's difficult to differentiate. With this, we have something uh, coming from, from, from the science for approximation at the industry level uh, from an input-output uh, method methodology. And that really allows us to have our independent view uh, on, the, on, on this subject. So there, it's not an external provider or some data that are, that are public or that's coming from companies and that could be changed. It's really our own view that is independent. And we think that's a, that's a pretty big edge. Excellent. And Dr. Cornell, Thinking through the framework, how robust is it and does it evolve or how does it evolve? Um, framework itself is, is very robust. Um, the nine dimensions, there's a strong scientific consensus behind each one of them and they capture the most pressing areas of change when we look at, um, when we look at the environment from this global perspective. Um, for each one of the nine dimensions, we have worldwide monitoring and we have multilateral agreements. Now, obviously, speaking as a 
scientist, I'd say we don't have enough monitoring. And I've already pointed to the serious implementation gaps of our policy context. And so one, one area of ongoing research and dialogue really between science and business and policy is in how we use the available information resources better for better transparency. Um, and in particular, how we try to understand the interactions between our red alert dimensions of the framework. Um, in 2015, most a group of most of the original authors and a few other experts from around the world published a follow-up article to the original framework publication. Lots of people call it the update, and to some extent, it does provide some more recent data um, on the on the individual boundaries. But really, in my view, the real value of this um, the 2015 paper led by um, Professor Will Stephan is that it really started to put the framework into practice by looking at the sub-global patterns of what happens when a boundary is breached. And it began to deal with some of the dynamic interactions between the planetary boundaries processes. And really those are the science agenda challenges that um, the international science community involved in this is continuing to work on. But more straightforwardly, and in terms of the kind of the way the framework is put into practice, when the baseline for the whole framework is 10,000 years of stable earth system conditions, this Holocene epoch, um, it's a very long-term, very large-scale perspective that means that five or 10 years of change don't really alter the framework as such, although they really do ramp up the urgency to reduce the pressures and mitigate these known risks. Makes sense. Uh, certainly, when you look back over the, like you said, 10,000 years of data to build the framework. And, and Gabriel, I, I started with the question, can you invest in an idea, not just a small one, but a big world changing, even world saving idea? How do you take what we talked about today and, and translate that into thematic investing? Uh, yeah, so it's it's true that it comes from an idea, and as you, as you say, a pretty pretty big idea, uh, and in which we really believe. I think we think um, you know for the next decades, it's not a trend that is going to last uh, just just a few years. Obviously, there will be cycles uh, along the way, uh, but we very much believe that this is something for 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 the next fifty years or more. And today, it seems really difficult, you know, to to see how we're going to solve all the issues. Uh, if you just take climate change, for example, uh, to get to net zero, for example, which you know most countries or companies are setting targets today to to reach that that goal, um, then we really need something like uh, you know like we had last year uh, around seven percent per year of reduction in CO two emissions that we had during the COVID nineteen crisis, uh, and that's with uh, really a big stop uh, in in the economy. And as soon as you know uh, the, the the crisis was over, it's not completely over yet, but uh, this year, uh, you know, emissions came, came, came back. So the, the amount or the scale of the change that will have to happen uh, is really something, uh, something enormous. Uh, and we think that understanding which companies will, fa will face uh, those headwinds uh, the most and which one will actually benefit uh, from those trends uh, is structurally something that will uh, favor a, a universe, a company like ours, 
uh, versus uh, other other companies broadly uh, in the in the economy. Uh, so we very much believe in this in this approach, and it has worked very well so far. Uh, and if you know we we can be, you know what we see over the last uh, few years, uh, even with the COVID nineteen crisis where we had the big economic crisis, uh, there was no uh, stopping in uh, you know in awareness from from individuals or from uh, regulation from governments. It's either an acceleration uh, that we that we have seen. Uh, so we think uh, with uh, with this, it's um, you know it's a very good theme uh, for us. Well, I would like to thank Dr. Cornell and Mr. McKelly for joining me today to share their insights. To my audience, if you want to hear more about the Planetary Boundaries Framework, you can visit the Stockholm Resilience Center website at stockholmresilient.org or visit the John Hancock website, jhinvestments.com. And if you want to learn more about the John Hancock Global Environmental Opportunities Fund, that's also available at our website. And finally, we'd love to have you follow the Portfolio Intelligence Podcast. So please subscribe wherever you find your favorite podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the show. This podcast is being brought to you by John Hancock Investment Management Distributors, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker, are subject to change as market and other conditions warrant, and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment strategy discussed will be successful or achieve any particular level of results. Any economic or market performance information is historical and is not indicative of future results, and no forecasts are guaranteed. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal. Thematic investing involves the risk that long-term market themes are incorrectly identified or that the securities chosen to represent those themes underperform. Incorporating environmental, social, and governance, ESG, criteria and investing primarily in instruments that have certain ESG characteristics as determined by the manager, carries the risk that the fund may perform differently, including underperforming funds that do not utilize an ESG investment strategy. Clients should carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses before investing. To request a prospectus or summary prospectus with this and other important information, please call us at 800 225 6020 or visit us at jhinvestments.com. John Hancock Investment Management Distributors, LLC, is not affiliated with Dr. Sarah Cornell or the Stockholm Resilience Center.